Welcome back. You're watching HFO TV. HFO TV is co-sponsored by JR Johnson LLC, specialists in multifamily restoration and repair work. Gantry Incorporated, the nation's largest independent mortgage banking firm. Butler Exchange Group, offering 1031 tax-free exchange services and forensic building consultants, experts in the diagnosis, repair, and preservation of multifamily assets. Welcome back to HFO TV. I'm Greg Frick, partner at HFO Investment Real Estate. And today we have Oriana Magnera with the Energy Climate and Transportation Program Manager. And we're going to talk a little bit about SB 1536 for people that don't know, uh, passed earlier this year. And it's about, you know, the permissible rules for portable cooling devices in housing. And again, in our audience, multifamily. So we're going to address this kind of as multifamily. So thank you for taking the time to come kind of educate uh, our audience on this and uh, maybe kind of give a little insight on, you know, what you're, you know, what you do and what's your program and how you're involved in this. Then we can kind of talk a little bit about some of the specifics on the program. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so Verde's mission is to build environmental wealth for communities through organizing, advocacy, and social enterprise. And a great example of environmental wealth actually is access to cooling. The ability to keep someone's indoor environment at a comfortable temperature and heating is an example of environmental wealth as well, in addition to clean air and water. Uh, Verde has been around for about uh, 17 years now, and our work has spanned from policy to program development to actually doing the work of installing um, uh, technologies that improve communities' lives, uh, like uh, heat pumps or, or cooling technologies. Is it based in, in Oregon? Is it a national uh, group? Yeah, so Verde is based out of the Cully neighborhood in Portland, and Cully is okay. a, a classic environmental justice community. It's the neighborhood closest to the airport, so there's pollution from that. Uh, our old office was across a diesel trucking corridor from a rail line. It's where the Owens Brockway Glass Recycling Facility is, uh, which has been in the news recently, and then also where an asphalt grinding facility is, and there are very few site lots. So it's a community with a lot of pollution and not a lot of investment. So Verde's role is, is bringing both that environmental wealth in terms of improvements to the environment, but also literal wealth to the community that helps people stay in their homes and fights displacement. Gotcha. Okay. And then your position is... Your climate, energy and climate coordinator for Verde, you know, locally, is that kind of the, gotcha, okay. So maybe, sh so, you know, we've talked about SB 1536 before. Uh, we've had some people on, on this uh, program and maybe shine some light as to kind of what it is and, you know, kind of how that works and what's available for multifamily owners or management companies for their tenants. So SB 1536 came about uh, just about a year ago. Uh, the last days right. of our legislative session were the first days of the heat wave. And a number of legislators took note of that. And we worked with those legislators and with housing, uh, tenant, environmental justice, energy advocates, utilities, all together to address uh, the crisis that's been emerging, uh, not just in the last summer when we had those record heat days, but in many summers before. Uh, the issue of increasing temperatures uh, has been a problem for many communities and people without access to cooling devices, especially people who are already medically vulnerable, like seniors and people with disabilities, are at most risk. Uh, and we saw that last summer when uh, almost 100 people passed away from around the state. Uh, so SB 1536 was intended to not wait for many more summers like that, but to take immediate action 
to uh, do a number of important things. The first was to move resources towards cooling devices and to ensure that people could actually access technologies regardless of income and regardless of their situation. The second was to address some uh, confusion uh, in the landlord-tenant relationship related to whether leases uh, could prevent people from installing air conditioners. And this became an especially big issue in the city of Beaverton, where Mayor Lacey Beatty uh, was actually interfacing between landlords and tenants. And so we recognized that we needed to have some clarity about when air conditioners could uh, be prevented for safety reasons or, or other right. reasons, but then also when a tenant would have a right to have access to that cooling on those very, very hot days. So from that, uh, SB 1536 took, took root and was passed. So I do know there's, from the multifamily, you know, because we have a lot of owners that have, you know, very old properties in the 1920s, there was concern about, you know, do they have an electrical system that's going to be able to handle that? So I know there have been some carve-outs for uh, the cooling devices. Maybe we can highlight, you know, what those are and how that works. And Absolutely. Uh, it was a really incredible process developing this bill, in particular because it strengthens Verde's relationship with uh, landlord and property manager organizations like Multifamily Northwest and Housing Oregon. And one of the key things that they taught us was that important barrier that comes up for these very old buildings, that uh, the risk of uh, losing power for everyone during a heat wave, which is very dangerous, uh, or simply right. uh, causing, causing fires or other electrical problems. So we recognize that was an issue. And that's one of the situations in which a uh, an air conditioner can be um, prevented through a lease. Um, portable air conditioners are mostly allowed in all scenarios, so long as they're not uh, blocking the ability for someone to move around an apartment if they're a person who uses a mobility device. Um, but the, one of the other key situations in which a portable uh, cooling device, like one of the ones that rolls on the floor, um, can be prevented is in that electrical situation. And there's an option for landlords who have those very old buildings or property managers who manage very old buildings, which is that there's $2 million uh, that moved through the, the bill that could be utilized uh, to establish cooling centers, either on-site if there's a common area that could be safely cooled, or off-site if there's a partner. And a great example of that is like Central City Concern, who are wanting to um, host cooling centers when it gets very hot with partner organizations uh, who are part of their, their network. And so these resources could help them install a device like a heat pump in a common area or in a, a church or other uh, space that could be shared communally and give people access to a cooling center that doesn't involve going all the way across town and into uh, a congregate setting, which was a big barrier for many tenants during the height of the pandemic. Uh, last summer. Many folks didn't want to go to a cooling center where there are many other right. people because of their, their concerns. So is that money from, I know you brought up Central City, is it for private owners as well? Can, you know, I guess what send an application in or something and say, hey, my building is too old for, you know, the electrical system can't handle that. Is there something we can do or... Exactly. Yeah, that resource is available for anyone who uh, has tenants, and that isn't just private landlords, but can also include public institutions like universities, uh, public housing, really anyone who's providing housing uh, has access to this resource. And that resource is available through the Energy Trust of Oregon. Uh, and you okay. can see below me uh, the uh, address to access more information about that program. Uh, and I'll also include my email address as part of this uh, conversation as well. So folks can reach out to me directly if they have questions. So can you, you know, from that standpoint, are you able to shepherd maybe owners that aren't, you know, sophisticated in dealing with, uh, you know, public entities in terms of trying to get, you know, funds? Is that something you can help with as they, you know, maybe run into some roadblocks and trying to get access? 
Absolutely. I've been receiving calls and emails from tenants who are trying to access cooling devices and also from landlords or property managers who are trying to access resources for their tenants or uh, this particular uh, cooling resource to provide that communal space. And I'm happy to support anybody who is trying to navigate a very complicated system and a new policy uh, that that may be confusing as it's just the first time we're, we're all going through it together. And then I know there's also been some questions about the uh, the window units, which we've, you know, through the years with some buildings and, you know, the if it's not installed correctly or things things like that, that, you know, you just can't have people willy-nilly just go put them up if there's danger and things. I mean, that's still kind of in place, I guess, is, you know, nothing has changed in regarding that with SB 1536. So some small things have changed. Uh, uh, it's no longer possible for a landlord, a homeowners association, uh, or a condo association to prevent someone from installing an air conditioner for aesthetic reasons in a window. But okay. Very clear about those safety reasons. And I've actually watched an air conditioner fall out of a fourth story multifamily building and crush a car. So I completely understand why that's a concern. Um, so that's why the, the portable floor units are preferenced um, and more restrictions can be placed on window units. And that includes not just that they could be prevented because they have a falling risk, but also it could be required for a uh, property manager or a professional to install the unit. Um, and if a, a tenant installs a window unit on their own, there's specific language in, in statute now that says a landlord is not liable for any damages caused by that unit if they weren't responsible for having a professional install it safely. So, I mean, in, in terms of, like you said, you kind of brought in in the negotiation and it sounded like it was kind of enlightening. It's, I want to say, I wish we had more examples of landlord-tenant policy where, you know, both stakeholders kind of get together and, and talk about, I mean, was it unique to try to do that where they kind of work together? Because it seems like historically the last few years, it's kind of been one side or the other. Um, I mean, I commend on trying to get this through and understanding the challenges on both sides. Yeah, I think uh, as an organization that hasn't been deeply involved in those past conversations and supported certain bills, but not been part of the negotiations, Verde was in a position to really see both sides in, in a way that was, was helpful and recognize that people were often talking past each other. A lot of the right. conflict that I've noticed that comes up in legislative spaces is that people have a common goal, but they have just different ideas about how to get there or sometimes just using different language to say the same thing. And so my role in supporting the negotiations was just being a really good listener and making sure I was hearing what people were saying, repeating back, making sure I was understanding and kind of going back and forth to help reach mutually agreeable solutions. And it's unfortunate because a lot of policy isn't that made that way in the way that you were just describing. And I think this is a good example of if we really try to work collaboratively and think about policy as a collective task, remember that we have shared goals, I think we can accomplish a lot more as a state. Oh, I would have to agree with you on that. Maybe we can get you to help negotiate some of these other things that come up. <laughs> or maybe you don't want to after getting involved in this one. I, you know, I, I, I've had some people ask me about, you know, the heat wave last year and the number of, uh, you know, unfortunately, the number of people passed. I mean, did anybody do a study as to what kind of buildings they were in? I mean, or were there unique situations or is it... I mean, I'm just curious on how that was looked at. Yeah, so county health departments and Oregon Health Authority compiled data about the people who passed away or were negatively impacted during the heat wave. And the folks who were most impacted were people in multifamily upper level units, usually uh, facing in a direction where there was just a lot of sun exposure. And one of the really big challenges during the heat wave last summer was that it never cooled down at night. 
And so even um, a housing provider like Home Forward who had uh, on-site um, communal uh, spaces for folks to be cool if they couldn't stay in their apartments, they had to close them eventually because they required a staff person who couldn't be there 24 hours a day. So uh, that, that was kind of the multifamily situation. The other community who is really at risk were people living in manufactured homes that weren't well weatherized and didn't have an air conditioner or a heat pump installed. Because if you think about it, it's just a, a little metal box that is going to right. trap heat. Um, so those are the folks who are most at risk. And um, one of the other elements in Senate Bill 1536 on the study end is looking at our affordable housing stock and determining what it would take to convert that stock to include cooling in every unit. And that includes all of those electrical upgrades, the mechanical upgrades, those barriers that you alluded to that come up for many housing providers. We wanna figure out what's the dollar number and can the state actually just get out there and help people install cooling uh, and fund that resource. And now is, is uh, manufactured homes included in this as well? Or is this? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Manufactured homes are a little tricky because sometimes there are parks that are owned and then the units are also owned by a landlord. Um, right. And then of course, anyone who actually owns their manufactured housing unit can install a cooling device, um, even if they're renting the pad. And Verde has done a lot of ductless heat pump installations for manufactured housing. That's one of the cooling programs that we provide and happy to share more information about that. And curious on what we've seen this last year. Are you it, have the supply, you know, issues, supply chain, you know, delays? Is that a, you know trying to install these things? Is the is there a product available to do that? Or are we on a, you know, I, I know last year we had issues with, you know, refrigerators and dishwashers. You've seen like a different kind of appliance at different times during the year in terms of the supply chain. Are you seeing the same thing on cooling units? Yes. So one of the other elements of Senate 15, uh, Bill 1536 uh, gave uh, $5 million to Oregon Health Authority to uh, acquire air conditioners that could be distributed uh, for no cost to uh, people on Oregon Health Plan or other uh, health plans offered by the state for people who are very low income. Uh, they've okay. been trying to set that program up since the time it, it passed uh, at the end of the legislative session in March. Uh, which is a very quick turnaround for a state program, um, but also a little bit late in the supply chain game for air conditioners. So they've had a hard time accessing them. And I think we're still going to move uh, 1,500 to 2,000 air conditioners this summer through that program. Uh, you are, okay. State at no cost, but it's much less than I think they were hoping for simply because of that supply chain issue, both in like the just natural cycle of air conditioner supply chains, but then also um, just the state of the world at the moment. So I've had a lot of people talk to me about a lot of the issues that come up seem to be on the publicly owned housing. And then we're putting legislation in place that adversely, you know, not saying it, I mean, it, there's benefits of that, but some of the time, again, I think on this one's a little bit unique because you guys uh, listen, I think, to both sides and were able, I mean, when this first came out or first was proposed, there were no exclusions and, you know, there was concerns. I know all the people that own urban brick buildings were like, wait a minute, we're not gonna be able to do this. I'm curious what your take is on on some of this stuff. Is it a would it be a reallocation of some of the money for like a central city that, you know, are you not do you not have the resource and ability to handle some of the issues that come up with your housing? But how do you navigate that? That because, again, we have a lot of private. Owners, like my, you know, we just keep adding things on. Is this really addressing the concern? Again, again, not this thing. So I'm just curious what your thought being in the middle of a negotiation, seeing where it started out, seeing where it ended up. You know, how do we get more legislation in this arena done like that as opposed to, you know, like you said, talking over each other? 
Yeah, I have two thoughts. One is a problem and one is the solution. And I think the problem is you were describing in terms of the fact that we have regulated affordable housing and then we have unregulated housing that is made affordable by landlords who are able to make rents that are accessible. Um, That second category is very much at risk from a displacement uh, perspective for communities, because if costs go up in terms of what it's uh, required to maintain those units, um, landlords aren't going to keep them. And we know that uh, many folks who who own property in the Portland area, like kind of the small um, uh, property owner side, you know, they own a few units, uh, they're selling right now because they're they're so concerned. I believe there's an Eco Northwest study uh, that showed that. Um, there, there's just not the financial feasibility to stay in the market. So the more restrictions we put on, I think you're right, that causes the problem. But the solution is if we ask more, we should give more. And that's why in Senate Bill 1536, in addition to saying um, new construction is required to have, have cooling after a certain point, you know, we're eventually hoping that all uh, rental units in the state of Oregon have cooling. But we can't get there if we don't provide incentives. And so that's why the bill included um, uh, $25 million uh, for uh, landlord uh, heat pumps. Okay. And, and an incentive that covers 60% of the cost uh, of the unit itself, but then also based on however the rulemaking happens when it happens next year, can also cover some of the mechanical electrical upgrades. Because we recognize okay. that one of the big barriers is not just the cost of a unit itself, but also that you can mess up the uh, pressurization uh, system of air in the hallway it can mess up the electrical. There are all these other things. And so if we don't think holistically when we make policy and we don't include incentives when we include that requirement, we're going to lead to some of the detrimental effects you were we were describing in terms of losing housing stock when we desperately need it. Yeah, which I think we've seen with even that Eco Northwest study. I mean, they really, really looked at single family homes, which typically in, in the rental side is your family, larger family rental housing stock and the amount of people getting out of that. I mean, we hear stories anecdotally about it, but you talk to realtors that are in the single family market. Yeah, there are people getting out of renting those, you know, and those are not being replaced. You're not building as, you know, you know, you're, it's really hard to build rental three and four bedroom units for housing and so for family housing. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting kind of study as what's going on. So. What's what do you I mean? What now? This is in place. I mean, what is on your agenda for the rest of twenty two and twenty three? Are you looking at? I mean, is it is it all based on energy and climate? Do you have the ability to, you know, kind of focus on other other aspects? Yeah. So we're we're interested in a number of things that may be moving in the next legislative session. Some are like really wonky energy things like renewable energy siting, which I won't get into here. Um, but other things are much more relevant to um, the world of housing. One is uh, Verde is looking to run a bill related to green infrastructure equity, um, increasing our tree canopy, uh, and, uh, including uh, resources for parks and just uh, greening uh, communities that need them because we know that's one of the strategies that can just help lower temperatures. A neighborhood like Kelly is five degrees warmer um, on any given like hot day in the summer than a neighborhood like Laurelhurst. So that's very leafy. And so we want to uh, address that disparity while also addressing some of the problems that come up with trees, like uh, the power lines that went down uh, during that ice storm that we had shortly before the heat wave. Uh, so, so we're interested in expanding access to green infrastructure, and that will probably include some resources to help property owners um, okay. uh, and, you know, cool their properties and, and uh, do things not just like trees, but also, um, uh, helping uh, make roofs less reflective. There are a number of different green infrastructure things that are not quite as as like recognizable as trees that can be beneficial, which is why we don't just say a tree canopy bell. 
Um, that's one piece. Uh, we're also tracking the Resilient and Efficient Buildings Task Force and hoping that the state will take action related to uh, retrofitting existing buildings. And uh, as I spoke before, uh, we're not interested in just seeing requirements associated with that. We're really interested in seeing a lot of resource move. And one great example right. of that would be an entire program to retrofit HVAC systems in uh, multifamily buildings. Uh, we know from talking to the sheet metal workers that oftentimes HVAC systems are not always installed the way they're supposed to be. And there are lots of little gaps and problems so that they're made correctly, but not installed perfectly. And so we need to go back through and make sure that some of those gaps are sealed, which can have a really big impact both for building energy use for indoor air quality. Um, so we really wanna see resources move next legislative session uh, to help uh, building owners uh, retrofit their HVAC systems and not just require them to do that. We'd rather see them be incentivized to do that because we know many are wanting to improve those systems. Well, great. Well, thank you for taking the time. I want to commend you on the work you did on 1536. Like I said, it was one of the few pieces of legislation that felt like, you know, stakeholders on both sides, again, weren't just talking over each other. We're actually listening. Hey, here's a problem. Let's talk about the solutions and how we're going to get there. And uh, so again, I want to commend you for your work on that. And hopefully we can, uh, get some other of these as we as we move forward in time. So thank you again. And if people want to learn more about you and your firm, they can go to the website below. And uh, thanks for taking the time to see you with us today. Thank you so much. All right. And we'll see you again next time on HFO TV. Thank you. Our entire office specializes in multifamily real estate, making HFO the largest multifamily brokerage in the Pacific Northwest. Your success is our passion. Build your legacy with HFO. Call 503-241-5541 or visit our website at hfore.com for more information.